Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Now, the safe injecting rooms of Richmond have brought into focus the drug subculture on our doorstep in Melbourne. Now, Mark Brandy takes us closer into that lifestyle and the struggles of the individuals there within this world in his latest novel, The Rip. So, Mark, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks, David. Great to be here. Now, the opening of this novel is very intriguing. It says nothing but says everything. Now, where were we? You tell me. We were talking about what was found in your room. You were talking about it. Some sort of chemical, right? No idea. You don't know what it is? No. It was in your room, you know, so... It's not a big room. Oh, I know that. Stinks something terrible. My room. The chemical. Didn't really notice. How did it get there? Dunno. Already there, I suppose. In the room? Yep. When I moved in. Which was when? A couple of months back. Never thought to ask what it was? Why would I? Well, forensics are looking at it now. Right. We'll get the answer one way or another, if you say so. Back to the girl again. What about her? Care to tell us what happened? Already told you. We've just checked those places, mate. No record. Dunno then. Must be a mistake. No mistake. No kidding. CCTV is coming. Should have it in the next hour. And? Well, you can see where this is heading, can't you? No idea. Look, mate, accidents happen. That's true. We're not here to judge. Fair enough. So why don't you just tell us? Yeah. What happened? Interesting sort of style and approach. Mm. Because we you're leaving the reader to assume it all. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that setup was important and in in the drafting of the novel actually i i think it was around the third draft like that 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 scene was always in my consciousness but i'd never laid it out on the page so it was probably around draft three or draft four that i set that out at the beginning and really planting that seed at the start that we've we've got someone missing was was vital but you're leaving the reader to assume it all Mm. and your familiarity with this sort of uh situation Oh, yes. I mean, I, I worked in the, the justice system for about 10 years. I've got three older brothers who all work for Victoria Police. <laughs> one's a, a prosecutor, one's a forensic scientist, and the other works in uh, criminal records. So I've got kind of the full gamut. Uh, so You've got a research facility. It's, it's ludicrous. I mean, every other like crime writer turns around to me and says, you know, you, you, it's not fair, basically. You kind of you, you get all these stories. Um, so, so yeah, that's actually been helpful. So I suppose I've I've been around, and and my partner she works at the county court as well. So it's 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 kind of ridiculous, but I, I've been around those kinds of stories and those darker stories of Melbourne's underworld in in a sense. Um, you know, most of my adult life. So it's yeah, it's an area of interest for me. But also then, it's intriguing for the reader to try and imagine what the background is to fill in the gaps because we can get an inkling of what's mm. going on here, forensics and the girl, and so you're building up a framework in your mm. own mind as a reader mm. of what's going on. The other thing you set up for us is this world of the drug addict, just the background. Um, so we've basically got people sleeping rough, the services available, the dumpster diving, the burglaries, um, basically turning tricks. Mm. And that whole uh, other 
world. So you've provided us with an alternative world that middle-class people uh, don't really know anything about either. Yeah, yeah. Look, when I, when I came to Melbourne when I was about 20, I suppose it was in the midst of... If really when that uh, you know the heroin crisis was happening and around Smith Street in Collingwood and around Russell Street in the city and and there was that um, kind of media panic around it too and it was it was intense on the streets I mean I, I remember just being such a visceral experience and then more recently with what's been happening down Victoria Street in Abbotsford and in Richmond and I spent quite a bit of time down there and I, and I suppose I what, what, what struck me is, you know, you, you have this this world kind of existing there. You, you're one kilometre from the CBD, and you know, and, and people are going about their lives, and and then you've got open drug dealing and, and people overdosing. We had 34 overdoses in a 12 month period in a in a four block area, I think, of Richmond, which precipitated the the injecting facility. But it's just this kind of. I, I mean, when I was seeing that, it's just this. Um, you, you can't help but be struck and be curious well, it's about the, that. Well, the juxtaposition, I mean, near the safe injecting rooms is mm. a primary school. Yes. And so you've got middle-class values, the sort of uh, purposeful um, society, etc., and then you've got the drug culture, and they're sitting side by side. Well, well, that's right. And I think also probably around the same time that that became more intense and, and I started to see that was when homelessness became more visible on Melbourne streets as well and at the same time became a media issue. And what's interesting, I think, is the way the community reacts to it because you have a portion that adopt a kind of humanitarian viewpoint, let's say. You have some who, let's say some of the traders who might say, let's move the problem on. Um, Some who are maybe a bit harder of heart as well and say, you know, we're a wealthy country. Why can't you pick yourself up and you know get a job? Um, but but I think by and large, uh, uh, for many people, it's it's very confronting and it's hard. And so people don't know what to do and, and they turn away. Well, you do provide us with a more nuanced and detailed insight into the drug culture. We have our narrator, and I won't give her name away, but it does come up in the end of the book. Um, and her uh, well, and she's got. Um, I wouldn't say a partner, but a fellow. So the narrator's female. Anton is her associate, so to speak. Mm. Um, And they have a very interesting codependent sort of relationship, which you point out is not sexual Mm. at all, Mm. etc. But they... They need each other Mm. in many ways as a a form of support. Yeah, and and I think that... It, it's a kind of family as yeah. well. It's, a, it's a her and Anton and and the dog Sunny. Mm. It, it's it's family and it's it's home, you mm. know. And and our, I, I think sometimes our conceptions of what home means can be you know, four walls and a roof. And we all know that can be the, the most unsafe place to be in well, many their, respects. Their concern is their sleeping gear that they've left in the park yes. because it's probably safe for a day, but for no longer, mm. you know, if they go away from it. But, yes, Anton and uh, the narrator sort of support each other. But also then there's a way that in some ways Anton can utilise uh, the narrator because they go to Centrelink at one stage and he's trying to enrol for housing. Mm. But if he's got a partner, it is more viable and you might get more uh, or 
bumped up the the queue so yeah to speak. yeah i mean and anton has a, a prison record as yeah. well and, and and those things so you, you do i think see through their their eyes the kind of difficulties they yes. face and even in getting around because they've got the dog so they can't get on the tram and they can't do those well things. the dog's interesting because in many ways uh sunny is the dog um it's it's more than just family it's uh the narrator has this dog and it's it, it might be too much to say love in many ways but the dog is also preventing her from well getting on transport or getting into certain situations going into certain areas Mm. um but at the same time it provides uh, comfort and support Mm. so it's a very important relationship yeah yeah i I think sunny gives her unconditional love you know without and and we know that Often with animals, and particularly dogs, you get that. And I think for her in her world, she, she has that relationship with Anton, but by and large, the world kind of ignores her. And, and I don't think that we, we can... It's hard to imagine what that's like. Yeah. Like, if we're, we're on the street, if we were on the street and, and begging, you know, as happens just in our proximity here today... Yes how it would be to have people walk past you, avert their eyes, and, and basically you're invisible. I, I, I think that's just the most dehumanising experience and you could Sonny have. And Sonny is faithful. Mm, yeah. completely. But also then it leads to a, a sort of paranoia because the narrator isn't necessarily all that stable. They go to Centrelink, she's got to leave the dog outside. This really skinny girl with major piercings pats him for ages. She's with some slimy-looking bloke, and he looks like he's pretty keen on Sonny too. So when the skinny girl comes in, I get up from my chair before I even realise what I'm doing. Anton tries to grab my arm, but I'm too quick. Stop patting my dog, I say. She gives me these big eyes, all innocent. What? I know what you're up to, I say. Don't know what you're talking about. Go near him again, you're going to cop it. Everyone goes quiet. She goes to walk off, but I grab her shoulder. What the f... Thing is... I didn't realise they have security at Centrelink nowadays, just like at the shopping centres. They never used to have them at Johnson Street. She loses it, basically. She's not in control of her own, um, well, emotions and such. like. And part of that is due to the drugs as well. Yes, Uh, and I I think we see that as the drug use becomes more intense, as the novel progresses and they they move in with the, the character of Steve. Yeah, well, we can move on now to the character of Steve. We've got Anton, we've got the narrator... But Steve is a rather insidious presence and he's got, in many ways, the ability to manipulate both Anton and the narrator. Quite frightening, really. Mm, mm. So, someone pointed out to me recently that I, I with Wimra as well, I have <laughs> this obsession with quite sinister men, you know, mm. these, these characters. But I, I suppose I, I've, I've kind of known people like Steve in, in my life. You well, know, they exist. And, and, and very manipulative. Can be quite charming as well. And even when I was, I was growing up in, in the country, we had a pub in the country and, and you know, we, you'd have people from all walks of life coming in and you would, you'd have some of these guys who were prone to violence um, but also charismatic, mm. uh, you know, not without their charms, but, but dangerous people, mm. and, and, and they do exist, and, and we see them come into contact with the justice system too. But in the, in the case of this story, you, you kind of have a, a, a paradox in a way because he, he offers them a flat which, which seems you know, like a, a wonderful place. Well, it, it gives them a roof over their heads, so to speak. Yes. But there's a price to be paid. I mean, Steve puts the narrator out to do some begging and it's useful having the dog pick people are more 
people are kinder to the dog than they are to the narrator. But also then Anton, who's had this stability, he's aware of his own situation, so he's trying to manage it. But then getting, and because he's been associated with Steve before, and all of a sudden he drifts off the the path, the level path that he's on and falls off. Yes, and I mean, Anton is probably the, the between him and the main character, he's the driver of kind of a long-term goal of like getting it together. And um, I mean, they have their hopes and dreams yeah. and happiness like like everyone else. And, and that's really important to the story. But when Steve enters the frame and, and it's a little bit uncertain about his relationship with Anton and, and, and just the hold that he has over him as well. But also then, yeah... Um Definitely sociopathic, and then it sort of verges on the other, yes. uh, so to speak. There's a support infrastructure that you point out in society. There's Dirty Doug, Major Perry, Jenny. There's all of this network, salvos and even the police, but none of them can actually take definitive action, really. They can offer support, you know, clean syringe, etc. Mm. but... There's no, unless the addict does it for themselves, there's mm. no... Well, I think, you know, there, there are, you know, people who do very good work out there in the community for sure. Um, I, I think that in in the case of the main character, it's almost as though, I, I suppose these small kindnesses from each of these services add up to something quite compelling for her. Yeah, and there's an opportunity, but it's up to the individual yes. to take advantage of it. Yeah. I want to round out the interview by looking at the um, description of what it is to take drugs and the reason for it. The thing about when you get a good hit is how it makes everything much clearer than you could ever imagine. It's impossible to describe properly, but it's like something beautiful and warm is filling you up, something smoothing off all the rough edges. The crawling skin, the knot in your belly, the worry, all of it gone. I don't want to make it sound romantic, except it is romantic, and it's just about the most wonderful thing there is. I love it, and it's something I'll always love, probably as long as I live. I suppose it's a bit like smokers. Maybe that's a good way for people to think about it. Smokers might quit smoking because of all the other shit that goes with it, but the actual smoking part is something they enjoy, something they might always love, but they just make a rational decision, I suppose, that the downside isn't worth it. But for me, the downside is worth it because downside is pretty much all I've ever known. Getting high is my only glimpse of the upside, if that makes sense. Her life is so bad that this is the only relief in mm. many ways. Mm. There's a form of escape, yeah. I, I think, there. you know, It's very alluring. It's absolutely very alluring. It's, yeah, but it's an alternative to the world they've been, uh, that she's in. I'm going to have to end the interview there, Mark. Sorry about that. It's a fascinating look into that world. The book is called The Rip, the author, Mark Brandy, and it's a Hashet publication. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, David. Thanks, Jen. Well, Mark's been here before, but Miriam Sved has never been on this program before, and I haven't read a book with so much satisfying surprises in it as her book, A Universe of Sufficient Size. Welcome. Welcome, Miriam. Thank you. Well, Josh, now he's a uni student and it's Sydney 2007. He's wanting to drop out, but not for the usual reasons. Why? Uh, I would say that he wants to be a big shot on the most fundamental level. He's he's at an age where he's sort of looking around, taking stock of the world and trying to gauge how he can 
best make his way and he decides that that is not by being a humdrum mathematics academic. He wants to get out there big and loud basically and he uh, has a set of um, mathematical applications that he thinks he can apply to the burgeoning social media world on the internet. Yeah, Silicon Valley is calling. So on the day of his grandfather's funeral, he gets support to leave uni from his grandmother. What does Josh know about his grandmother? Um, Not a lot. Um, He comes from a family that's fairly swathed in silence. Uh, He is also 20 years old and very self-absorbed, so he has never really asked the pertinent questions, and it's only really through this connection with his grandmother after his grandfather's death that he starts getting a little bit of insight into her life, um, along with the rest of his family. Well, his mother, Illy, knows very little about her past too. She knew her father was difficult and uh, didn't like mathematics spoken about at all. But the morning after his funeral, what does she find on a bedside table? Uh, She finds a notebook, a mysterious notebook, uh, with her her mother's name at the top. Um, she She doesn't really know what's in it or why her mother has left it for her, but it's fairly characteristic of her mother, this level of evasiveness and mystery. So she knows that there's something that her mother wants her to find in this notebook um, and she sees that there is some maths involved and, as you said, she's very hostile to, to anything mathsy and she assumes that her mother's going to try and lure her back into this, this world that she's always resisted. Um, yes. Right, well, this. when was this story, when, when did the notebook take place? Um, the notebook uh, was written in 1938. Budapest. In Budapest. And if you know anything about World War II, Hungarian, the Hungarian story is so sad. There were po- pogroms against Jews even before it was annexed by Germans. And then the last months of the war, most Jews were sent to Auschwitz. It's a horrible story. But Esther's stories start with her four friends from uni. Who were they? Uh, So Esther and her four friends um, are her best friend Ildi, who she's known since she was very young, Um, Ildi's boyfriend Levi, um, her Esther's fiancé Tibor, and um, the character who is in some way sort of at the centre of this group is uh, Pali or Polly, I don't know how, whether to try and be authentic right. about the Hungarian pronunciations, um, who, yes. Is Who's a, a genius. Is a genius, yes. Is, is a, In a, a mathematics. And uh, they all, they look after him because, you know, the story goes that even at uni his mother is still tying his laces, <laughs> his shoelaces. But this is a quote from the book. Listening to him talk about numbers was like hearing someone speak about their close family, loved ones full of quirk and charm. Mm. So you get that whole sense of, of of the beauty of it. And there's a lot of mass speak in this book. Look, there's prime sets and there's integers and positive consonants and discontinu- discontinuous and continuous functions and the very important bond percolation. <laughs> when things go viral on the internet, that's what's happening. Bon percolation. As I discovered. But it's it's when these like minded people get involved with talking about it, it's 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 fantastic. You know, the drawing the graphs they are doing and dotting the uh, joining the dots on, on oh, it's it, it's very easy to put it. So how do they think they're gonna get out of Hungary? 
Uh, they so the the story is is somewhat inspired by my paternal grandmother. She used to tell me a lot of stories about her life in Hungary before the war, and she always um, made a point of the fact that even though they my grandparents did get out in 1938, it wasn't with any sense of genuine foresight about what was to happen. It was it was a, a, a very lucky confluence of circumstances that had to do with them having very few professional opportunities in Hungary, and and they 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 managed largely through luck to um, to, to wrangle a visa. And the the characters in in the novel, I, I wanted to be sort of in that same situation where they can see that things are going badly, mm. but at the same time they. Have have a very happy life in some ways you know they're they're really connected to each other and they have this this really vibrant community of friendship and maths and work and Mm. um and so they have they have plans sort of bubbling away in the background but they take them seriously to very variable levels so so they think that you know this is esther writing in her notebook Mm -hmm. the best way to get out would be to publish some articles and maybe get um um poorly out and follow him, you know, mm. help him to get out and will get out. So they get an invite to by the professor of um, mathematics in Vienna. Sympathetic? <laughs> um, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say no, no. <laughs> he's a, horrible. <laughs> easy character to not sympathise with. Well, um, Esther's over there with Paulie, and Paulie really impresses this professor. But uh, it's it's the sights that Esther sees in Vienna: Jews being forced to scrub the st- streets that uh, makes her uh, cringe. Anyway, um, so uh, the grandmother is given Illy, the the, uh, the her, her daughter. In fact, as Lily says, she's crept in like a geriatric tooth fairy to leave this notebook. She doesn't want to read it all at once. But we have, the reader of the book knows what's going on and Illy doesn't want to read it. Why doesn't she want to read it? Why didn't she just devour it? <laughs> uh, on, the, on the most obvious level, I think she's scared. She knows that there are things that her parents have kept from her. She had a really volatile relationship with her father who's just died and she was optimistically seeing this as a time that would be about closure and about mm-hmm. moving on. She has vague plans for... She's lined up a... a, a a retirement home for her mother um, and, you know, this is this is going to be a peaceful time and then her mother ambushes her with the story of their lives and it's all very ominous. And um, She's reading about her, her mother's best friend mm. who her mother's never spoken about, mm. who she's, she's named after. Yes, yes. So you can understand and, and she's already done the um, g- genetic uh, or, uh, or the ancestral check back in America and she knows that she's got aunts and uncles and cousins over there, but as her mother said, they're unaccepting and ungrateful and then resolutely deflected all Illy's follow-up questions. So here's Illy. She's at the breakfast table with her grandmother and her daughter at each end, and both of them aren't talking to her. So what she has is, quote again, from A Universe of Sufficient Size, Two generational bookends of women at the table who are too noisy in their silence. Oh, oh, oh you can feel that. I love the way you read. <laughs> 
Ellie remembers her own days at uni, just how how happy she was in those days. And now she's got Josh dropping out and she's got problems with her daughter Zoe too, hasn't she? Yes, she's got she's having a few issues with her young adult daughter. Um another I I, I sort of wanted to explore various ways of various ways that we kind of can contain and control the chaos. And Illy is sort of is is struggling to contain her world into in these these neat little little units. And one of the ways that it's threatening to spill over is her daughter, who's embracing some alternative lifestyles. Alternative, yes. <laughs> women's circus. <laughs> yes, go women's circus. Anyway, um, look, what comes out of this? And Esther writes this in her Budapest 1938. Uh, notebook and it, and we finally learn but we learn before Illy does which makes it you know sort of so much more interesting for us because we have our feelings about it as the reader and Illy as the daughter you know and there's the letter that comes from the professor from Vienna and arrives and we all want to yell at that young grandmother don't do it don't even think about it. Get out, but not like that with him. <laughs> no, we can't say what it was. But I must say, the climax of the story comes at the mass conference at Sydney Uni. Josh is very much surprised about his grandparents' identity and even more so at the police arrest of his sister and mother at a, at a rally. And I just, you know, you've got to read it, but it is such a satisfying surprising book unfortunately there's things that I did learn and one of those was in Budapest at that time Hirig Simon what's that at university this was a an annual rite that my grandmother told me about which was basically um sort of uh um, recreational Jew bashing. So the, the the university students, in a spirit that I think was was supposed to be quote unquote playful, would um, give any Jewish students a bit of a a bit of a, a beating. Um, or I think there was a thing where where women, girls and women, just got shouted at and spat on, and, and yeah. boys got got bashed. Um, and um, yeah, the part of it that I always found most kind of shocking was that they swapped Jewish students between between disciplines so they would they they didn't want to you know mess with any potential note sharing with the the kids in their own classes so the you know biology students would go over to physics and the physics students would go over to maths and etc it was yeah oh yes <laughs> oh horrible Look, I learn a lot, but I just I love the way this was written. I really enjoyed that. We have three different parts because there is also a part of um, of the grandmother's life in Brooklyn in 1950, and just why they came to Australia. It, it's really good. But I think we start with Josh, and I'm going to give Josh the last word as Miriam's yeah. Fed has, has written him. Now, Josh is. Um, He's he's a he's he's mess and he likes graphs and stuff. So it, this is from um, about something he'd like to mention. Now remember, we started and we got to finish at his grandfather's funeral, and all his grandparent grandparents' friends are all milling them around. They're all over, you know. They're all closer to ninety. <laughs> so. Uh... 
Old people are so bodily, their skin calling attention to its unbeautiful self, with intricate whirls and creases, and the smell, funny how the smell seems to increase proportionately as the body decreases. Josh wonders if you could graph these inverse smell-to-body coordinates, and then all the smells to cover the smell. <laughs> oh, isn't that a terrible oh, thing to awful, graph? awful. Oh, Miriam, how did you, how did you, nice girl, yeah. think of things like that. <laughs> someone else, someone else must have written that. Absolutely. But of course, Raleigh Palmer was modelled on a real Hungarian mathematician. Oh, oh. Um, Pali Kalma. He, wa- he was, yes, he was modelled on a, a, a very well-known 20th century mathematician called um, Paul Erdős. Okay. So there are secrets in families and also unresolved mysteries in the world of mathematics. <laughs> now I've been speaking with Miriam Sved about her book, A Universe of Sufficient Size, at Pan Macmillan, uh, Macmillan Australian. And I was talking with Mark Brandy about his latest novel, The Rip, which goes into the sub culture, drug subculture of Melbourne. And I'm lucky to go into different places all the time. Indeed. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. See you next week.